welcome to episode one of the Fundraising Partnership Podcast, where we talk all things lottery and regular giving. This is intended to be a limited series of podcasts where we discuss some of the challenges facing the regular giving side of fundraising and address our thoughts as to how we can overcome and then flourish as charity partners. In this episode, we'll look to explain some of the jargon, talk best practice, bust some lottery player myths, and then discuss the importance of return on investment. So, you're thinking about starting a lottery. Lotteries are a truly amazing way to fundraise, but there's a lot to learn to make them compliant, to make them profitable, and then to navigate through all the noise and the whole plethora of information. Here at the Fundraising Partnership, we're all about quality, long-term charitable donations. Whether a donor comes through playing a society lottery or through regular giving with gift aid as an added bonus, generating the best return on investment for the sector is why we were formed. It's actually why I chose to join the company I've spent 13 years at Sue Ryder setting up and growing a lottery and the regular giving products. I've loved nothing more than sharing my knowledge of the quirks of lotteries, the challenges that I'd overcome, and the successes that came from over a decade's worth of learning about charitable gaming. To find a company that allows me to freely share this information for the good of the sector really shows me that the whole team here has been set up with the same passion as the charities that they're representing. Like a stick of rock, this company's values and its excellence runs through everything that we stand for. So, before we start talking more about lotteries and their benefits, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. So, I started back at Sue Ryder in 2010, running one of their lotteries for two hospices in Leeds. And when the charity decided to launch a national charity lottery, I was the one that they came calling for. And 10 years later, I added regular giving to my roster and was responsible for 25% of the charity's fundraising income. The lottery world is a fantastic community and I'm proud to be able to give back with any type of advice or information that I can to help a charity learn from best practice and navigate the tricky world of lottery compliance. Having spent 13 years in the lottery world, I certainly know that I've gained a lot from the community and being able to give back now is something I'm proud to do. So, I'm actually going to run you through a little bit of jargon and it might help you when working with a lottery. And there's plenty of jargon when you're in lottery world. So first of all, LCCP, the Licensing, Conditions and Code of Practice. This is your lottery legal framework. Every rule that you must follow when running a lottery. Now, unfortunately, it is written in a a very legal language. So it's best to lock yourself in a dark room and take your time to really understand it. This document, though, you have to think of as your friend. It's a slightly bossy friend, 
but it's a friend nonetheless. It covers everything that you need to know about how to run a lottery. Now, the document is created and issued by the Gambling Commission, and they govern all of the gambling activity in the UK. They issue lottery licences, they run audits, and whilst, like any government regulator, they need their rules to be followed, when it comes to charity lotteries, which are also known as society lotteries, they're certainly more flexible than other regulators. Now, the Gambling Commission also looks after all of the betting that happens in casinos and bookmakers, so they have a really huge remit. So, the Gambling Commission are going to issue a lottery licence. But some small operators, they might also run under a local authority licence. There is a limit to the amount of money that you can raise before you need to go onto a full Gambling Commission licence, but a local authority licence can be something for a smaller lottery to start off with. But applying for a Gambling Commission licence can be a daunting task. Help is available if you're outsourcing your lottery management to an ELM. I'll explain what ELM is in a second. But the Gambling Commission, they, they have three main priorities. The first is to keep crime out of gambling. The second is to ensure that all gambling is conducted in a fair and open way. And the third is to protect children and vulnerable people from being harmed by gambling. So on your lottery licence, you're going to need to have a responsible person. Now, best practice is that you'll actually have two responsible people. These are the people who are named on your lottery licence. These people have responsibility to ensure that the lottery remains legal, follows the LCCP, and covers the three main aims. Like I said, best practice is to have two people named on your licence, because if one person leaves, you've then still got somebody else named on your licence that can continue that gambling activity. If you only have one person named on your licence, and that person leaves, all of your gambling activity has to pause. So, I mentioned ELM a few moments ago. Now, an ELM is an external lottery management company. So, these are companies that run the mechanics of a draw. Many charities use these external companies so that they can concentrate on promoting and growing the pool of active donors. Using an ELM puts a large portion of the legal requirements onto this external company which is why if you're going with an ELM, it's imperative to choose wisely. Go with one of the major players in the industry. They themselves are heavily regulated and audited by the Gambling Commission. There are smaller ELMs popping up, but there are some horror stories of draws not taking place as a new ELM wasn't experienced enough to be in the sector. So my advice would be use a big, well-known ELM who has many, many years of history and has lots of large clients who trust their reputation to them. Now, whilst we have no professional connection or financial connection to any ELM in the industry, we do have experience of working with several of them. So, if you wanted to speak to us, we could put you in contact with any of those major players. Now, some charities, they may actually choose to go it alone. 
run their lottery drawing house. For me, this depends on who you are as a charity and what your aspirations are. Many of the biggest charity lotteries run with an ELM. So doing it in-house isn't about the size of your charity or the size of your lottery. It's more about whether you want to have that feeling of control over compliance, control over data, and then control over the costs of what it costs to run your lottery draw. So one of the things you might hear about is the 80-20 rule. So what's the 80-20 rule all about? This rule is about the minimum amount of money that your lottery can give back to your charity from every ticket you sell. A minimum of 20p in every £1 of a lottery proceed must be given back to your charity. This is the first thing that has to be done once a ticket has been sold. That's when you can then start thinking about, right, I now have to pay out prize money and I have to pay out running fees. There are certain running costs that can be spread across the course of a whole year, such as your lottery licence, which could be around £1,500 a year. Costs to promote your lottery don't always need to be included in the 80-20 rule as long as there's a clear paper trail that shows that these costs have come from the charity's reserves to promote and grow the lottery. The 80-20 rule, though, is one of the most important rules you'll have when running a lottery. Now, one thing I want to do is also do some myth-busting. I've come across loads of false assumptions in my time working with lotteries. The first of which is, well, a lottery allows a charity to connect with a different type of donor. That's just simply wrong. The data shows that the donor profiles of a lottery player, they're similar to any other type of charity donor. The only reason that people think that a lottery connects with a different demographic is because they have promoted the prize money over the cause when they recruited that donor. Donors who play a lottery to win a prize, they cancel much quicker compared to those people who signed up to play because they care about the charity. You want long-term donors. Donors with the ability to give to you in other ways in the future, potentially even leave you a legacy. You don't want a demographic of people who give short-term with no desire to support you. Promoting your charitable cause, instead of promoting prize money, wins hands down every time. It lets gamblers gamble away on the national lottery, but lets charity supporters create you a sustainable base of long-term income that you can plan around. Now, I've seen that this data firsthand at Sue Ryder, the ACORN profile of a lottery player simply proves this theory wrong. They are the same people who give to you in any other way through your charity. Now, the next myth to bust is that, well, lottery players, they're only in it for the prize. Again, it's just wrong. Research shows that the vast majority of your lottery donors, they don't even know what the prize money is. They only signed up to support the cause playing the lottery because it was the only product that we offered them when we asked them to sign up and support us. 
the only ones who are interested in the prizes are the ones who were sold a lottery and not sold a charitable donation with a small chance of maybe winning a, a gift back. Prized focus players cancel quickly. You want donors who are going to stick around with you in the long term. So with this in mind, it's worth adding that your marketing material doesn't need to be prize-led. Your materials should be about the good that the donor is doing. Promote your amazing cause and don't try and compete with Euro Millions because we simply don't compare. And the last myth to bust is one about lottery players being a lower demographic and key giving lower value gifts. Again, we've just said they're not a different demographic. The Acorn player, uh, profile of a lottery player is the same as most other donors. So with this in mind, by recruiting the right age of donor, you're creating a donor pipeline for other charitable gifts. Let's take the below as an example. Donors whose first interaction with this national charity, their first interaction was lottery. But they also went on to give an additional £4.8 million of non-lottery donations. They also had a really high uptake to legacy when they were asked. The top five largest gifts from this national charity's lottery players all stood at over £100,000 each. The highest stood at over £540,000 each. Those are not low-value gifts from a lower demographic audience. These are the same charitable givers who give in many, many other ways. Here's the kicker, though. Only 13.88% of additional donations came in from donors who were under the age of 50. There is a clear correlation between a donor's age and both their longevity in donating through the lottery and the additional gifts that they will make. So choose wisely when you are recruiting your donors. Now, I also just want to throw regular giving into the mix here. I love lotteries. Heck, I set one up and grew it for 13 years. But with prize money costs, ELM fees, gambling licenses, and all of the compliance to tend with, we should be looking more at regular giving with the additional gift aid benefits that this can give. Many charity lotteries, they will start off with around a 50 pence in the pound cost to run the draw and pay out prize money. Over time, I managed to get Sue Ryder's costs to be just 15 pence in the pound, but that was still only 85 pence in the pound going back to the charity. When you compare this to regular giving, where you could probably get around 80% of your new donors also signing up to gift aid and with no prize money and ELM draw fees to pay out, you can be looking at a £1 donation actually being worth around £1.20. So when you're starting a lottery, do you want 50p in the pound or do you want £1.20? 
Now, I'm not saying don't start a lottery. What I'm saying is regular giving has to be considered as a viable option to help boost your income. If the donors are the same people, which we've just said, and we can increase the donation value whilst reducing the costs and the regulatory responsibilities, why are more charities not simply offering their supporters the choice of two? Would you like to play our lottery with a chance of winning a small prize, supporting our amazing cause, or would you like to give us a monthly gift where we can also claim 25% back from the government in gift aid? Giving a supporter choice reduces cancellations. That supporter is making the decision on how they want to give to you. By having regular giving as a secondary ask when you're promoting your lottery, it also catches the donors who don't gamble. So regular giving is something that every charity should be thinking about when looking at whether to start a lottery or heavily promote a lottery. So with everything considered, you've decided that a lottery is right for you and you're going to start one. Now, the first thing that you need to do here is look at downloading the LCCP. Read it from cover to cover, then read it again. Then you need to start looking at getting some advice. Now, there are some independent resources that you could ask for help with to get guidance. And I'll stick my hand up here and say, you could come to me and ask for help if you would like. But in all honesty, the best thing that you can do is talk to as many ELMs as possible. Get the best understanding that you can of the lottery landscape. Even if you're planning to go it alone and run the draw in-house, an ELM will be able to give you advice. You might even find that the benefits of their wisdom, their experience and guidance, could sway your decision to choose and actually use an external provider instead of running it in-house. The next thing that you need to look at doing is creating a business plan. You need to ensure that your lottery is going to be viable. This is important because you'll actually need to submit this business plan when you're going for your lottery license. So this is something that we can help you with. Having set up and grown and promoted and managed a lottery, this is something I feel really at home with. Now, I've created a financial modelling tool. It looks at all of the aspects of growing a lottery around donor recruitment and financial modelling. It looks at attrition and those donors who are cancelling. Takes into account your prize money and your running costs. So the tool calculates the phased income and the phased costs on a monthly basis and generates you a profit and loss statement. So... When you're then happy with your business case, you then need to start looking at your lottery turnover and decide, do I start with a local authority lottery license where we could sell probably up to £250,000 worth of tickets in a rolling 12-month period? Or am I planning on my lottery being much bigger? In which case, you need to start the process with the Gambling Commission to apply for your lottery license. Now, I'm not going to kid you here. The process to get a license can be quite gruelling. You will need help from several people within your organisation. 
There will be people in finance around banking setup, people in legal around the standard policies and reporting logs that you'll need. And this is where going with an ELM can be really beneficial, as they'll hold your hand through most of this. They'll even give you example policies that you can use. But if you're going alone, you'll have to answer all sorts of other questions about your technical standards and around how you plan to run the draw and how you plan to so store supporters' data. You've also got to pick your responsible people. And these are the people, as we said, who are responsible for looking after the compliance of your lottery. They need to complete an application form themselves to show that they are trustworthy individuals. Again, remember the Gambling Commission's rule, making sure that gambling is fair and open and keeping crime out of gambling. So the responsible people have to go through certain checks. This again can take quite a long process. Now, one thing I would definitely recommend is to join the Lotteries Council. So this trade body not only has an amazing community of people willing to give help and advice, but as a member, they also take care of some of your legal responsibilities, such as making a donation to a charity that helps people with problems they have with gambling. It also gives you access to free resources such as gambling finance and gambling legal assistance. So it's a really beneficial trade body to be a member of. The last thing to remember is that um, starting your lottery can take several months. So plan well ahead. So now you've got your lottery, how are you going to promote it and get people to play the draw? So I'm going to talk about my experience at Sue Ryder, the 13 years that I spent promoting the lottery and the numbers that I saw. So with any charitable giving, direct marketing, door drops, mailing packs, partially addressed mail, they all have a low response rate and lottery is no different. Even when you carefully select the addresses and the postcodes you send to through donor profiling, the responses can still be very, very low. And as we know, there are never any guarantees that spending money on cold or warm direct marketing will recruit you any donors. And we saw that at Sue Ryder with low response numbers. We also saw really low response numbers on social media and online advertising. It never worked for me at Sue Ryder. And whilst some charities do report success for social media, I would dearly love to be able to delve into their retention figures and their actual costs for social media um, acquisition. At Sue Ryder, the cost per acquisition for a social media um, recruit ended up being more than double what we saw with our face-to-face -face suppliers. And when you couple that with the fact that these donors were cancelling at twice the rate as my average donors, social media and online advertising simply didn't stack up for me at Sue Ryder. Now, the same goes for DRTV, direct response TV advertising. While some charities seem to have made this work, others that I spoke to who tried this saw really poor returns. And the, the market's now being dominated by some really big players, such as the Postcode Lottery. We'll all see their adverts on TV. And you've got new initiatives like Omaze, 
who are giving away these million pound houses. It takes DRTV off the table for many, many charities. Now this leaves face to face. Uh, and this is an avenue which we specialise in. So we are obviously going to promote this as a really great way to be able to recruit new donors. But my experience at Sue Ryder showed that face-to-face -face is an avenue that allows you greater control over your costs and greater control over who you sign up. With a face-to-face -face agency, you will only pay a fee when the agency recruits you a donor. And these third-party agencies, if you select the right one, you'll end up with a team of amazing fundraisers who'll be there to expand your brand and work with you and your supporters to give an amazing experience about what the charity does. If you choose the wrong agency, you can end up with a busload of teenagers who've been moved into an area to be never seen of again. But when you work with the right agency, you'll get a fundraising guarantee that if a donor cancels before making a certain amount of payments, they'll refund you the cost of acquisition. That quality guarantee is really important and it's something you don't get in any other form of acquisition. Face-to-face -face generated me over 95% of my sign-ups at Sue Rider. And by working with these conscientious agencies, it allowed me to insert KPIs into the contract. KPIs around the age of the new donor that I wanted. The data had shown that older donors were not only giving longer in the lottery, but were also giving us additional gifts. Now, one thing that I'm really keen for you to take away is keep return on investment as your priority. Keep it as your main focus. Taking the leap to launch a lottery or invest in mass recruitment for a charity rightly requires a significant amount of thought, planning, consideration and safeguards. However, if there's one thing that you take from this video, please make sure it's focus on return on investment. Make sure that you focus on taking the biggest slice of the pie for your charity. There's so much pressure on charities to focus on immediate results rather than thinking about where will this lottery product be in 10 years time? What's our long-term goal? Now we think this way when we're talking about legacies. So why not mass recruitment? With a decent face-to-face -face recruitment plan and the right face-to-face -face agency behind you, you'll be making money by the end of your second year you'll have paid back all of your investment costs but where the real money starts rolling in is after two three or four years worth of consistent investment in face-to-face -face. the hospice world who really kick-started the whole charity lottery movement back in the late 90s they still have around 25 percent of their original donors from the 90s still giving to them now on a monthly basis. So when we're talking about 10, 15 or 20 years worth of donations from a large portion of your donors, charities need to stop thinking about how many players have we got in the draw this week and start thinking about 
how many quality donors have been recruited and what's their potential to give to us in the future with additional gifts. Recruiting the wrong donor due to pressure to perform will actually cost your charity money. So rather than recruiting a younger donor, where we do see evidence that 50% of them cancel within their first three months, a charity would make so much more money by simply putting their investment into a 5% savings account. But by focusing on the data, looking at the long-term donation patterns and only recruiting donors in the right age groups where the data has proven that they stick around for the long term, a charity can easily make three times their investment back over five years. And that's what we do here at the Fundraising Partnership. We take recruitment and retention data. We analyse it to ensure that our fundraisers are not only enhancing the charity partner's brand through amazing, genuine conversations, but also by carefully and skillfully signing up only the right donors. The donors that the data shows have the greatest potential to stay with our charity partners in the long term. Now, because of this approach, we have some of the best cancellation rates in the industry. And it's knowing what we know, we can't accept poor quality recruitment for our partners. We can see that low, um, low quality recruitment costs our charity partners money. Recruiting the wrong people costs our charity partners money in the long term. There's a lot of potential income by recruiting the wrong people. And because we know this and because we analyse the data, we simply can't stand for that. So, there is a lot to think about when entering the lottery sphere. But with the right people there to guide you, such as the right ELM or the right face-to-face -face partner, a charity can really prosper and create a sustainable multi-million pound income stream with just a few years of investment. So if you have any questions about starting up a lottery, promoting a lottery or regular giving, please feel free to contact us here at the Fundraising Partnership. <laughs>